0: But it became increasingly apparent that the airlift was going to be successful and you know it's a bit like uh, the, the story in ukraine at the moment the west could not be seen to fail in this this was absolutely imperative that they they kept berlin alive
1: hello and welcome to the aspects of history podcast my name is oliver web carter and I'm the editor and your host. In the second part of my chat with Giles Milton on Berlin after the war, we talk about some of the characters involved in the story and then the main event of the period, the Berlin airlift, which I nearly neglected to bring up and which Giles helpfully reminded me. Now there are also a few similarities with today's great West-East struggle in Ukraine as European and US governments are keen to assist Ukraine in its fight with the Russian invaders. So Giles gives some of his thoughts there too. Now Giles has also written about a subject that is about to see an important anniversary this year and which has similarities with Berlin and indeed Ukraine. In 1922 in Smyrna, Turkey, now Izmir, Tens of thousands of people were killed, and many women raped as Turkish forces entered the city. All the links we discuss are in the show notes, and you'll find timings on there as well. Now, the new Aspects of History magazine is out now, and you can read about subjects such as prison camps and their inmates on the Isle of Man during World War II, an interview with Stephen Saylor, the best-selling historical fiction writer, And there's a piece on our historical hero for the issue, George Washington, by David O. Stewart, guest on the show. So do head over to our website and find out more. Finally, if you can subscribe or even give me a nice review, I'd be massively grateful. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Giles on Berlin after the war. So Ernest Bevin he w- wow what a what a man I mean I I didn't really know that I, I I haven't read much about him apart from in your book so he's just this sort of larger than life man of the left but hates communism fascinating man
0: he is a fascinating man. He was the one person when he, he came back to the Potsdam Conference as the representative of the new Labour government, Pat Churchill having been, having been sent home. And uh, his, one of his famous phrases was, I'm not going to have Britain barged about, he said. And had he been there from the beginning, I think he was so pugnacious and so, you know, really punchy that he might have been able to push Stalin around a bit. But alas, by the time he came back to the conference for its second half, um, I think uh, it was too late for him to do anything. But he is an amazing character. I mean, uh, his, his secretary said um, he guzzled alcohol as a car guzzles petrol. You know, he, was a, he smoked a uh, drink, um, he was combative, he was argumentative. And in one notable um, Senate, uh, conference that was held in Paris, um, he got so infuriated with Molotov, with whom he was um, engaged in an argument, that he actually got up with his fists drawn and was prepared to punch uh, Molotov in the face. And, he had to be pulled away actually, which I think was a a, a rather wonderful moment in this international conference.
1: I I can't imagine uh, Douglas Hurd or Margaret Beckett doing something like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. So whilst he understood uh, the lay of the land really, what about Clement Attlee? Was he in a slightly different, what was his view of, of the Russians?
0: I think it was really Bevin, that, because Bevin was so uh, on on the ball when it came to foreign policy and so in control of foreign policy that he was really dictating events uh, on the ground. I so see. Not, not only did he see exactly, did he read the situation very well and the dangers faced by the West uh, inside Berlin and in Western Germany, but he also realised that the entire structure, the security structure of Europe had changed. If Stalin was no longer an ally, then that posed the question that we have two opposing camps, basically. And, and you know, from from, a, um, from, a very, uh, from the very beginning, he was looking at the, archi- the structural architecture of Europe in the aftermath, in, in the immediate aftermath of the war. And he begins to plan for uh, the establishment of what would become NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is basically to guarantee The future safety of Western Europe by declaring to by bringing all these nations together and famously declaring that an attack on one was an attack on all. This was the one way that Bevin and others um, saw that they could preserve the peace in Western Europe because they it was based on the principle that the Soviet Union would never attack uh, one nation if it saw this overwhelming force ranged against it.
1: Well, we're seeing it's so interesting because obviously we're seeing Ukraine today, um, and but the the Russian reaction to NATO being set up was this is, this is a terrible act of aggression against us, mm. and um, with you, Ukraine today, you see the Russians are uh, any move at all, it, which are effectively defensive measures, are viewed as terrible acts of aggression against them. It's a, I guess, an echo slightly of of where we are.
0: Do you know what? When I wrote this book, I thought I was writing, writing a work of history. Oh, you
1: timed the paperback release perfectly, yes. <laughs> and
0: and now, I mean, with the absolutely terrible events going on in Ukraine, you just see, you literally see history repeating itself. I mean, when I saw what had taken place in Bukha, north of Kiev, you see, you know, the looting, the rape, the atrocities that have been committed. I mean, this is straight out of the playbook of the Red Army in 1945. This is exactly what they did, uh, you know, it, when they entered Berlin. This whole idea of Denazification of Ukraine—a total absurdity, you know—but um, uh, th- but Putin knows that this word denazification has a very powerful sort of imagery uh, inside Russia, and 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 you're right to say the whole, uh, you know, NATO. A couple of years ago, NATO seemed like a spent force, you know, uh, especially under when Trump was president. Now, of course, we're all talking about NATO and it's a a new renaissance for NATO. And this takes us right back to, I think, Colonel Frank Howley, who he said um, repeatedly, That the only language the Russians will ever understand is the language of force and that they will never dare attack Western Europe if uh, the nations form themselves into into an organisation, a defensive alliance, basically, because they know that they can't win and they will never fight um, if they think they can't win. And so I I, I think, uh, yeah, you really get a sense of sort of deja vu when you see what's taking
1: place now uh, and what took place in 1945. Um, so I was interested in your your view on this, actually. Do you think that the allies have not been as strong as they should have been against uh, Putin's Russia? Or the I, West, I should I probably describe as that.
0: I think the problems for Ukraine really begin with the West's Pathetic response to the uh, annexation of the Crimea in 2014. Uh, that they basically, we in the West, did absolutely nothing, and that made Putin think, ah, well, I think I can get away with slightly more. I've taken one one bite. I'll take a, an, an even bigger bite, you know. But something did happen in the meantime. Something very important happened in the meantime, and that was that the West, the West, particularly America, began actively training uh, the Ukrainian army. The Ukrainian army in 2014. Was a pretty hopeless force. Um, it has transformed itself in the years, in the intervening years, which is why we're seeing it fighting so effectively, far more effectively, it should be said, than the uh, than the numerically superior Russian army.
1: Well, we're heading back to 1946 because there's a, there is a little bit of an echo because uh, with with the establishment of NATO, that meant that American isolationism, which had obviously not been um, during the war, but that, that they they were forgetting about isolationism for, for um, the foreseeable future with the establishment of NATO. I guess nowadays the Americans are having to think seriously about that again. But um, so we have we have NATO established and then the Commendatura, it sort of uh, rather collapses, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, we've actually slightly jumped ahead we of ourselves here. Have, because, a, oh right. That, because <laughs> we need to we need to step back a bit because NATO, of course, was established in nineteen forty-nine. So all the the, yes. the a lot of the drama that is taking place in Berlin actually takes place before this. And and really the establishment of NATO is in many ways a reaction to the a massive uh, sort of standoff uh, and the uh, that's going to take place in berlin with the blockade and then of course the berlin airlift so i don't know maybe we should
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's quite important to mention that <laughs> <laughs> yes the berlin and um the berlin airlift or the blockade and oh well, and what we should also talk about what is is a great character in there well i i, I use great as in amusing to read about but he's a pretty dislikable character is um the representative of stalin in in berlin walter ubricht
0: yes so um one of the plans that stalin had to try and take over berlin to basically kick out the western allies and take over the entire city he had trained up a small band of uh, german communists who'd fled the third reich and taken, uh, sought exile in Moscow during the war. They'd been trained up um, and they were going to be t- dropped back into Berlin at the end of the war and surreptitiously, secretly take over the local administration. Um, the, the, the local, the mayor, the town halls inside the various sectors uh, and, and, and you know regions of Berlin. And this is precisely what Walter Ulbricht and his small band of uh, communists they proceeded to do, working on the on the ground with local mayors inside the city and everything. They began to um, take over the remnants of the um, existing sort of organized this the structure of the city, if you like, including and most importantly the police force. Uh, they they put it, they they brought in a chap called Paul Markgraf, an ex-nazi turned communist uh, formidable uh, individual in fact who who uh, appointed himself really as head of the berlin uh, police force so this meant that when the allies the western allies when the americans brits and french arrived in berlin there was already this sort of network of communists, sort of working beneath the surface to try and take control of the city, with the active support of the Red Army, who are
1: also, you know, are based in the east of the city. So, as communists, I guess, did they flee before the? Or did Ubrecht flee before the war or during the war? He, uh, he fled, uh, I think, at the beginning uh,
0: when things turned very difficult for communists in the Third Reich. So early on, he fled to Moscow. He'd spent many years in Moscow. He knew Stalin very well on a, on a personal level. And he was dropped back into Berlin pretty much the same time. I mean, just a couple of days after the Red Army had entered and captured the city. So he was there from the very beginning, making contact with other communists who'd remained in the city underground, working in great danger, it should be said, during the Third Reich. So they, try, they were trying to form some sort of structure that they could use to to
1: help the Red Army take over the city when when the moment came. And it's interesting because Berlin, of all German cities uh, during the war, was probably I don't I don't know if it's um, a great way of describing it, but, but not the most fervent uh, Nazi city in Germany. Uh, but um, uh, Munich being probably the most pro.
0: That's right. I I mean, if you look at the uh, election results in the in the elections that preceded the forming of the Third Reich, Berlin voted uh, in in a very small percentage for the Nazis. So, yes, it was not a Nazi, a natural Nazi stronghold. In fact, it was much more sort of more open minded, much more tolerant. Um, So, uh, yeah. So uh, and and with a with quite a sizable communist presence, actually, in the city.
1: The Commendatura, uh, is 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 on borrowed time really isn't it and and that that collapses and and then we get the airlift so uh Yes,
0: Yes. I mean, you have to see the sort of Commendatura as, as you, you read your way through these accounts, it becomes more and more rancorous. It becomes increasingly impossible for any business to be done in in the Commendatura. And it becomes clear to, to everyone, really, that the city is really beginning to split into two completely separate parts with a, with a Soviet controlled East, with its own city, functioning city government in the East and in the West as well, likewise a sort of Western dominated government. Um, and and um yeah what happens we reach crisis point in june 1948 where there's this uh really this the, this this standoff in the kommandatura develops into a full scale rupture where the soviets storm out and they're not going to have anything more to do with trying to run the city as a whole and what do they do they slap a blockade onto west berlin they do what the americans and brits have feared all along they cut the motorway they cut the rail links into Berlin. And suddenly you have a small garrison of American and British troops in the city, unable to replenish their supplies, unable to bring any food or weaponry, it should be said. Uh, And also they have some 2 million West Berliners in their sectors of the city who have got no food because, Traditionally, Berlin gets all its food from Eastern Germany, from Pomerania, from areas like that. These are under control of the Red Army and the Red Army is not going to allow any supplies into West Berlin. So basically, you have this small area of the city uh, with two million people and two, and, and, and two major garrisons who can't get any supplies by rail or by road. What are they going to do? They either are going to abandon West Berlin, And this is something that Colonel Howley said, we will never do. He says, I will never, ever leave Berlin. But that begs the question, how on earth are you gonna keep this city alive? But West Berlin alone needs a minimum of 4,000 tonnes of food a day just to keep the people from starvation. Howley says, we're gonna try and do it by air. And thus begins the famous Berlin airlift. Most people, including Stalin, think that this is logistically impossible you know the, the planes they have uh, available at the time can carry a maximum each plane a maximum of four tons of supplies in they need four thousand tons a day just to keep the city alive but the, the the airlift is really one of the most well it's the most remarkable sort of episode i think in that immediate post-war history and uh, certainly in the book it's a uh, it forms a remarkable few chapters of the book i i, I hope because what you have this extraordinary effort on the part of the Americans and British to bring in every serviceable plane that they have across the world into West Germany. And these planes are then going to fly uh, all the supplies that are needed into West Berlin. They're going to fly continuously round the clock, flying at six different levels, uh, landing every few seconds into Berlin's two serviceable airports, uh, bringing in everything that Berliners need. And it is really a quite remarkable achievement.
1: It really is. Uh, uh, and, and over a winter as well. So the weather conditions must have been very difficult for the pilots.
0: Exactly. And, and there are two key characters, I think, that are worth sort of flagging up here, because, as I say, most people said logistically this was impossible. But there happened to be in the British sector of Berlin at the time, this eccentric uh, a sort of boffin, if you like, called um, Air Marshal Rex White. And he was um, he was uh, a mathematical genius, basically. And he uh, looked at what was needed and he looked at the planes they had available and he worked out that it was just about mathematically possible to supply uh, West Berlin with the supplies needed if they, uh, if they, were, if they constructed this sort of um, amazing timetable of planes of the schedule of planes landing into Berlin. So he said to the Americans, this is actually possible. And the Americans then looked at who could actually uh, command this airlift. And they turned to this extraordinary general called General, he was known as General Tunnage Tunner. Um, and he had been, spent his war flying in supplies and explosives into uh, Chiang Kai-shek's forces in China during the war, flying a, a highly dangerous airlift operation over the Himalayas, dropping supplies into the Chinese. The Americans immediately realized he was the world export, was expert in, in flying in supplies in, in an airlift situation. And if anyone could do it, uh, General Tunner could do it. So basically, uh, they took uh, Reginald White's sort of blueprint, mathematical blueprint. They gave it to General Tunnage Tunner and they basically said, get on with it, you know. And Tunnage Tunner did just that. He brought in every available plane from around the world and set in motion the uh, the Berlin airlift. With, I have to say throughout, with the support of, of Colonel Howley, who was, um, you know, had sort of very uh, genius ideas like dehydrating fruit and vegetables, bringing it in because it weighed less, all sorts of, you know, little sort of logistical tricks, if you like, which enabled them to keep Berliners alive in these desperate times. And they were desperate times, because as you mentioned, um, in the autumn and the winter, Berlin is notorious A for its fog, and B for its uh, cold weather, snow, uh, which falls, you know, over much of December, January, February. But they managed to overcome these hurdles and keep the Berlin airlift going, um, despite massive provocation from the Soviets, who, it should be said, never dared shoot down the Allied planes. But they did pretty much everything else that they could do to try and thwart the airlift.
1: It is one of the most amazing achievements. Uh, the Russians, did they view this as a sort of humiliation, the fact that they were una- unable to really isolate Berlin to such an extent that the Allies would leave?
0: I think they did. I mean, look, they they kept up the, uh, b- the uh, blockade of Berlin, of West Berlin, for almost a year, but it became increasingly apparent that the airlift was going to be successful and you know it's a bit like uh, the, the story in ukraine at the moment the west could not be seen to fail in this this was absolutely imperative that they they kept berlin alive so they threw absolutely everything at it and i think stalin realized by the spring of 1949 that uh, that the Western allies were going to make this work and they were not going to back down. And he gradually, through in, in the sort of back rooms of power, he began to, um, his diplomats began to talk with the Americans and British diplomats and find a way out, or find a way to climb down from this um, impossible situation that he put himself in. And, and gradually, uh, after uh, detailed, complex and fraught negotiations, the soviets agreed to lift their blockade and reopen the autobahn and the railway link into berlin and it was seen it has to be said by west berliners and by the west as a whole as an absolutely triumphant victory it was the first it had been the first battle of the cold war and it'd been the first victory for the western powers of the cold war
1: yeah it's it's it really is the the opening that the the cold war starts here doesn't it and and so with nato's creation That's where your book ends. But we then get the wall, the wall comes up sort of um, in in 61. So the Soviets are never happy with a kind of the situation that that we, we ended in in 51.
0: Yeah, I think. But Berlin, Berlin is going to be a flashpoint for the entirety of the Cold War, largely because it's the one place uh, where you re- you have uh, the Americans and British and the French facing off against the Soviets. Basically, they are literally face to face inside Berlin. So it's it really is becomes a flashpoint. Um, And I think that um, a a character we should mention who who comes in to the book um, at the time of the blockade and who's incredibly important is the, the West Berlin mayor, Ernst Reuter. Because Ernst Reuter, what he does is basically lift Berlin onto the world stage. He makes it um, an an immensely important issue for the West. And as I said, the West could not be seen to lose in this battle. And that was largely because Ernst Reuter made these uh, powerful speeches in front of several million Berliners, which were then broadcast around the world, saying that, you know, you cannot uh, abandon Berlin. Berlin is a symbol that has to be protected, that if the West is going to win in any shape or form, it has to Win in Berlin. So Berlin becomes and will remain throughout the Cold War this potent symbol, um, this symbol of two entirely different ways of living you know you have the the cosmopolitan uh wealthy west berlin set against uh you know the the, the misery of life in east berlin so uh, i think symbolically as much as anything else it becomes incredibly important throughout the entirety of the of the cold war and of course the end of the the end of the cold war and the berlin wall being hacked down being brought down and and you know the end of the Cold war
1: so reuters speeches i guess are uh... a a very effective uh, form of information war, like we're seeing in Ukraine now, where it, it really does galvanize the whole world to back West Berlin.
0: Exactly. He really upped the ante, if you like. And while uh, the Americans and British could bring in food and supplies into Berlin, Reuters' role was to uphold the the morale of Berliners. This was incredibly important in a siege situation. You know, Berliners were very hungry. They had to hold out and they didn't know for how long. And you have this uh, orator standing up delivering these speeches, um, saying that the the West is not going to back down. He really um, inspires confidence in Berliners and he is there. Uh, side by side with Colonel Howley all the way through uh, the blockade of Berlin.
1: And there's an extraordinary picture in the book of him giving his speech with the Reichstag behind him, which looks like it could be 1945 and the, the Soviets have just left, but it's four years after and it's still in a bit of a state.
0: Yeah, I mean the city uh, r- remains in ruins for a considerable time because the you know the city not only had the red army fought their way into the city and caused you know immense destruction but of course the uh, you know the RAF and the Americans had been bombing Berlin you know for the better part of 4 years as well so the place was was uh, in absolute rubble and would remain so but you're right to mention that photo because that photo is very striking not least for the the size of the crowd that he's addressing there were more than a million people listening to that speech in Berlin and of course it was then broadcast around the world and everyone in America and Britain and the West are listening to this speech as well. When you hear that speech, when you hear the powerful oratory that uh, Ernst Reuter uses, you realise why the West simply could not abandon Berlin, that it had to stand by it and it had to make sure that it was going to win this battle.
1: Well it's uh... An amazing story. It really is. So I really do recommend our listeners. There's a link to Giles' book. Um, now, I just wanted to mention a couple other things because, Giles, you're a bit of a master at podcasts anyway, aren't you? You have your own one, Unknown History, so I recommend everyone head to that. You've just done an episode, haven't you, or, or last month?
0: Oh no it's a bit of a while ago actually since i did uh it was actually when the book came out in america I, we had a, a a launch a big a big set of uh, episodes there so people could listen to that anyway as you say unknown history you'll get uh, a lot more about
1: berlin there okay great and then something's happening soon this year you you you've written a book on Smyrna in 2020 um in ni- about 1922 uh,
0: yes, well, well, of course, um, it's the 100th anniversary of the destruction of Smyrna. Now, a lot of people will say, what is the destruction of Smyrna? Where is Smyrna? Smyrna uh, was the most col- um, cosmopolitan, tolerant and importantly, majority Christian city in the Middle East. It is nowadays Izmir um, on the west coast of Turkey. In 1922, it was Smyrna and um, this became the battleground for a, a massive battle between the Greeks and the Turks, the Greeks supported by the West heavily, by, particularly by the British and British um, weaponry. The Greeks, of course, had invad- invaded uh, Asia Minor and were trying to claim back vast uh, areas of land in Asia Minor for the Greeks, re-establishing, if you like, the old Byzantine Empire. And the Greeks were eventually defeated and they were, the Greek army was pushed back to this great city, this incredibly cosmopolitan city, full of uh, uh, Europeans, Americans, Greeks, Armenians, Turks, what what have you. And my book tells the story, the appalling story of the sack of Smyrna by the Turkish army, um, while watched on by 23 allied battleships in the Bay of Smyrna who, who did nothing to prevent the really the first great humanitarian catastrophe of the 20th century. So it's a very very powerful story. It's a story of refugees, of displaced people, of 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 a, of a terrible war, um, not dissimilar to what we're seeing in Ukraine at
1: the moment. It's interesting. Interesting. Is, is
0: this? Do we get the Treaty of Lausanne a year later? We do, and that's where you get the the first great uh, shift of populations, where it's decided to uplift, uproot all the ethnic Greeks in Turkey, several million of them, and move them back to back to Greece um, and move the Turks, the many ethnic Turks who live in Crete and elsewhere in Greece, and ship them over to Turkey. So, so this is deemed to be a, a solution. Of course, it ruins millions of people's lives. Um, and of course, this great uh, cosmopolitan city this tolerant city is uh, burnt to the ground. Uh, there's nothing left of Smyrna at the end of September 1922. So it's a sort of salutary tale. And as you say, uh, it's the 100th anniversary coming up. And certainly in Greece <clears throat> and possibly in Turkey, it will be marked uh, in, in, you know, and commemorated uh, for, the, for the sort of profound it ha- effect it had on both of those nations.
1: So that's coming out again in October. Is that right? That's coming. Uh, that's well, it's. It's in September, uh, it's going to be the celebrations, and the book is available. Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure there's a link in there for that as well. Giles, thank you very much for your time. It's been so interesting, and the book is just brilliant. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Thanks. Giles Milton's book on Smyrna, Paradise Lost, you see what he's done there? Is out now, along with his latest, Checkmate in Berlin. I've put links we discussed, including maps of the divided Berlin and Germany in the wake of the war, in the show notes. Coming up next week, we have a Queen's Jubilee special. And I'm very lucky to have Tessa Dunlop return to discuss new material in her paperback, Army Girls. And she gives the lowdown on the Queen, or Princess Elizabeth, as she was, and her experience in the army during the war. So please do join me then. If you can subscribe or give me a nice review, I'd be so pleased. But for now, thank you and good night.